a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, we change it up a little and look at the body of work from one filmmaker, Iranian director Jafar Panahi. A little heads up, Wolf pronounced Panahi's name wrong for almost the entirety of our chat. Apologies for that, sharpness can get a little foggy as the years go by. Enjoy this one, guys. G'day guys, welcome to Wolf Cub Film Club and we're going to kick off the episode today with a a listener question. He's actually a dear part of our family, Tony, over in Birmingham in the UK. We're very grateful for Tony's feedback. So for the first time on the show, we're going to address an interesting question that he posed. I will read out his feedback regarding our episode on My Octopus Teacher, the documentary, and Ketty, which was the story of cats in Istanbul. So Tony said to us, I enjoyed your discussion of the contrast between a more structured film like My Octopus Teacher and more open, episodic Ketty and found very interesting your preference for the latter, Steve. I can see that the shape of the octopus story is very neat and the idea of the narrator going on a journey is a bit of a cliche. It has the story arc we associate with fiction. However, the fact is that unless he's making it up, which he clearly isn't, he does go through an experience he finds transformative and healing. Isn't one problem with cliches the fact that they do contain truth even though they aren't the whole truth? It left me as a reader of fiction more than a watcher of docos asking myself whether the story arcs of fiction are taken from the experiences of life or whether we reinterpret our lives to fit the patterns we find in literature. Or perhaps it is a question of how we balance the idea of life imitating art with that of art imitating life. What's Tony's specialty? Shakespeare. He's an acknowledged um, expert on Shakespeare. So, thank you for your question, Tony. And we're going to uh, we're going to address it. So, what are your thoughts, Wolf? Well, I think it's interesting that question of whether art imitates life or life imitates art. And it did remind me of, um, you know, although during that show I was heaping a bit of crap on the octopus story because it, for me, follows that stereotypical hero's journey kind of narrative arc. But I have found dealing, say, with students when they bring a rough cut of their films for us to have a look at, that often, you know, what they've cut is a bit of a mess, but as soon as you start thinking about restructuring it in in the fashion of the hero's journey, suddenly the story starts to work, you know. Um, So this person's going along, something 
bad usually happens that deposits them into a crisis they have to deal with or some role that they have to play that they haven't played before. They deal with the problem in the process, they're changed and they come out of the whole thing, you know, a better human being. Um, And again and again I find, despite my inclination to the contrary, that applying that kind of structure to to stories actually works. So I think I think Tony's right in that sense that although that kind of story arc is a cliche, it does contain truth, maybe not the whole truth. Whether life imitates art or art imitates life is another kind of dilemma, another question, I think. What do you think? I think the two feed each other. And it comes down to what your personal preference or the the way you want to tell a story. So whether one's applied to, to the other or not. So in your case, where your students are students of documentary, they're trying to piece together these real life incidents and then it starts taking this form in some kind of natural way regardless of documentary or narrative as you say this structure seems to come into play and that's something that's hard to define why is that one way of making sense of life and of the universe is to turn it into a story we make sense of the of the universe by telling each other stories by turning experiences into stories at the same time the way that we turn turn things into stories and tell stories influences our experience of life. My only thing is like, how did the, how did the hero's journey and the hero's journey, I think it's not biased to males or females. It's a general, the hero's journey is applicable to both sexes, but where, where did it originate? Where did it stem from? And when was it, when was it applied as a storytelling tool? Did it naturally come about? Well, as you read, I think it is called The Hero's Journey. I can't remember the guy who wrote the book, the original. Joseph Campbell? Joseph Campbell. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, yeah. And he he looks at myths and origins of myths and so on, and his conclusion is that the hero's journey has come down to us from a multitude of different, whatever culture you look at, according to him, whatever time scale you look at, you find that that way of storytelling is coming through. His argument is that it's common to all or most cultures. This is a big question, Wolf, but have you found elements of the hero's journey in your own life and perhaps Tony as well? Um, my life's more like the idiot's journey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the hero's journey. I don't know. I haven't. I've never. Um, I've never really tried to turn my life into a, a narrative. I guess I'm saying is like you have, of course. You tell me. You've written the book Ride. Yeah. Well, I've always been fascinated by the the hero's journey and I've felt aspects of it in in my own life but I guess I'm wondering like whether whether 
whether many other people do or whether I'm just bonkers. Um, but the journey I went on leaving Australia and pursuing music and so on had some elements of, you know, stepping into the unknown and discovering a new world and then having to confront oneself and then, you know, coming out of that and having people come in that influence you along the way. Um, I find it really fascinating, the hero's journey. So I've definitely experienced it in in my own way, as I'm sure many people have. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it, that your book has kind of followed that model in a way. Yeah. And, 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 but it's the story of your own life. So we're very happy for a list of questions. So we thank you, Tony. And uh, we would love to hear more and address more. It's a great question. So, um, it's please. Less, a, less about questions and more about comments, I think. Yeah, discussion. Well, yeah. Put, put your six penneth in, share some experience. So we thought we would do something a bit different. I'm not sure if this is the last episode we're doing of the year or whether we've got one one more. Today is the second last episode of season one, and on the last episode we're going to look at an Australian film and a German film. This is our second last, and it's a bit different, as you say. Yeah, we thought we'd try something different for for two reasons, really. One, because sometimes rather than... Uh, discussing particular films, it's it can be interesting to look at a body of works uh, from a particular filmmaker, for example, or a particular genre of film. Uh, we're going to look at a particular body of work. But the second reason is we've been pretty much Netflix-type Western oriented Western culture, and I thought it might be interesting to kind of step out of that and and come at things from a different angle. And a filmmaker that um, we've both admired, uh, I've admired his work for quite a while now, um, is an Iranian filmer called, filmmaker called Jafar Pahani. And Jafar Pahani... Um, has, has a, a substantial body of work under his belt. We're going to look at three or four films or refer to three or four films that he's made in the last oh, 20 to 30 years. And the interesting thing, apart from the fact that he's Iranian and and from a comes from a Persian background with a very different kind of sensibility towards filmmaking. Um, He's also banned in his own country uh, from making films. Um, He was imprisoned uh, briefly, uh, sentenced, I think, to six years jail for making, for stepping outside of the kind of um, permitted boundaries of Iranian culture. Um, He was essentially charged with propaganda against the Iranian government. Okay, yeah. 
but has managed to serve that sentence uh, in home detention, but is also banned from making films. Yeah, he had a 20-year ban on directing, writing, conducting interviews uh, and leaving the country, as well as a six-year prison sentence, which was essentially house-bound. Yeah. But despite that, he seems to have managed to have made three or four films since that ban came into place. And um, two or three of the ones we're going to mention tonight or talk about were made since the ban. Um, He was mentored by someone who people may have heard of, Abbas um, Kiara Stami, who's probably the best known so-called new wave Iranian filmmaker. And Pahani worked for for him for a number of years. And, in fact, the first film that, that Pahani made, the screenplay was written by Abbas Kiarostami. It's called The White Balloon, uh, a film that Pahani directed in 1995 and which really set the tone for the films that he would then continue go on to make, in that um, Kiara Stami, a a lot of Iranian filmmakers um, have kids or children as main protagonists in their films, and apparently one of the reasons for that is that um, if there are kids in films, there seems to be less focus by the... um, the aptly, aptly named Ministry of Guidance and Culture, uh, which monitors and censors all this kind of thing. So Kiara Stami um, used kids a lot, and so does um, so does Pahani. Kiara Stami also developed a reputation for making films inside cars because he saw the the automobile as a space for reflection and conversation. And uh, Taxi, which is one film we'll talk about, I think, um, is, is a kind of tribute to Kiara Stadami, I think, by Pahani. Just about a, a, a car being an important space, I've actually learned that here just because I'm driving my son to school along quite a long motorway. And we have this time in the car and I've just learned the value of having this time in the car because I used to complain about it and be like, oh, we've got to sit on the motorway for 25 minutes. But I've actually learned that this is a really important time for my son and I because we have discussions about music that comes on and there's nothing really to do in the car but talk. Well, you know, the advice from psychologists to parents is, if you've got something really tricky or difficult you want to talk to your son or daughter about, do it while you're in the car because you're not sitting opposite one another. You, you're not looking at one another. You can be looking out of the window and you can talk about perhaps more difficult things because it's less of a confrontation. And I've applied that in my life <laughs> Our daughter Sinead a couple of times. <laughs> Let's go for a drive. <laughs> oh, Dad's got something serious to say. 
But yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely absolutely right. So where where do you want to start with Pahani? We're probably going to jump around from film to film. I don't think we're going to do sort of one at a one at a time. But for me, it was sort of culminated in this is not a film, but there's a number of key stylistic things or philosophies behind his work that I found really interesting. Um, which you could just start with, like essentially Panahi's style is guerrilla filmmaking at its best. It's absolutely like guerrilla filmmaking with very high risk. Not He's made a career out of not doing as he's told. This guerrilla filmmaking where there's actually the stakes are very high is is the primary reason why he's rightly had so many accolades because of what's at stake when I say guerrilla filmmaking, that's, you know, intermeshing this immediacy of, of, of documentary style with narrative and kind of marrying the two and being in, out there in the, the, the risky parts of the world trying to move, move stories forward. So for me it's like the ultimate guerrilla filmmaking, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not sure because guerrilla filmmaking to me is kind of undercover, on the run, concealed cameras, you know, personal risk kind of stuff. There is personal risk to Pahani because of the bands that exist upon his filmmaking. But it has to be said that he's not guerrilla filmmaking in the sense of just going flying, you know, flying blind. His films are very, very carefully planned, worked out, you know. I mean, uh, an example, if you want to start with um, The Mirror, which uh, has a child protagonist, um, it opens with a 360-degree, three-minute shot that starts on this child as she comes out of school, pans as all her schoolmates cross the crossing on the road and then another crossing and then it kind of picks up on a guy who's trying to cross the third crossing but because of the traffic he keeps going backwards and forwards so that follows him and then is picked up by two guys who do cross the road and then they disappear and two women with prams appear and the shot just continues, comes back round to the girl who's just come out of school. So that 360-degree pan, you know, probably with orchestrated with kids crossing roads, actors, come, you know, coming into the shot and out of the shot and encouraging the shot to keep moving, you know, probably took a couple of days. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) it's a massive one-take special. (laughs) Yeah, but also happening in the middle of a city where all the, in the middle of Tehran, where all the traffic, you know, and the hubbub is going on at the same time. I think I meant ultimate guerrilla risk in terms of the consequences that he faced from the filmmaking yeah, there's times with hidden cameras through his films, but it was more in 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 the risk of trying to bring about social change in Iran and and exposing elements in the 
society as a kind of fly on the wall while telling these orchestrated stories. Mm. Well, off- offside is a great example of that. If you want to start, start with offside. Offside's from 2006 and women in Iran were, were banned from attending stadiums or football games. And this, this is the story of a group of young women who try to sneak into Iran's World Cup qualifier against Bahrain in 2006. So it takes place at the actual stadium while this game's going on and, and the group of girls are are actors essentially university students and it's about their experience essentially the group of girls they end up in a spoiler alert as always but they end up on the periphery of the stadium being guarded by soldiers almost in a cage basically in a cage they're caged in but on the outside of the stadium so they they're they're getting an idea of what's going on in the game through the soldiers' reactions to the game and they're reacting to the things that happen in the game. And I found their their passion and their group reaction outside of the stadium moving in a way that it was it was a tragedy that they couldn't be inside, but they were tr- they were trying to celebrate this thing at the same time, it's kind of hard to articulate, but they were experiencing it from the outside when really it was like, well, why the fuck can't they just be inside? Well, all of Pahani's films are about restrictions put on people's rights and most often the restrictions put upon women. Um, his, I think the film was inspired by an incident that actually occurred to him, he and his daughter, when she tried to get into a game with him and wasn't allowed and then managed to sneak in. But the girls in this film, there's what probably half a dozen of them, they all get caught. They're all disguised as boys basically and they all get caught before they, or either before or once they've got into the ground and end up herded into this pen where they question the soldiers and ask you know why why you know why can't we go in why why aren't we allowed in and they're given these reasons like well it's full of blokes who are used going to be using foul language and it's not good for women to be exposed to this kind of thing and they say well we won't listen to it we'll block our ears and you know then there's some other reason why they're not allowed in um but yeah uh a lot of the film is shot at the game and obviously not all of it. Some of it is shot, you know, at other times. But, in vehicles, um, again, in buses. and yeah, 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 in buses. And the background of the game itself and the result of the game, because Iran win and qualified to go through to the World Cup, of course, was unknown to Pahani. He had, in fact apparently submitted a fake script to the Ministry of Culture and Guidance because you have to submit a script if you want to make a film. Um, And he had not put in the script that this was about girls. It was supposed to be about guys 
football fans. And then he went ahead and made the film um, and was kind of sprung afterwards. Just a technique. So who who was funding his films? Was this Ministry of Guidance? Are they the funding body or are they the? That's a good question. Uh, um, one is con- one constantly is told that his films are made, you know, on a shoestring, but they often involve quite large crews. So. Um, I wouldn't think the funding comes from the Ministry of Culture and Guidance. So, so regardless of his funding, he needs to still run it through them. Absolutely. And not just the script, but the actors, the editors, everybody has to be vetted by the ministry. It reminds me of the uh, Ministry of Magic in Harry Potter, you know, this kind of overarching, unwieldy bureaucracy that manages to stifle any kind of creativity or any any sense of what you said of of defying convention it exists to prevent criticism of the regime i presume and um it comes up again and again and we'll talk about it in taxi because that's a major part of the film is a discussion about the ministry of culture and guidance so yeah, Pahani, I, I, I love Offside because, well, partly because it's about soccer, but also the motif of the soccer game and the conflict involved and um, managing to give you that sense of being at the game but barred from the game. So as the audience, we never really see the game either. We only hear the crowd and hear the cheers when Iran finally finally score and the girls of course are not submissive at all then they don't take it they make life an absolute misery for the soul <laughs> the poor buggers who are the soldiers who are doing their national service for 18 <laughs> months or whatever they do and are hoping for as easy a time as possible before they can go back to their you know previous lives and these girls managed to make um, complete hell. One soldier comments to them: First, you want to join the army, and now you want to go to the men's toilet because there aren't any women's toilets, of course. So he just can't get his head around the idea that women might want to do the kinds of things that men do anyway, as a matter of course. Or a key stylistic thing I read about Panay is that he he doesn't believe in evil characters. So there isn't clear antagonists. He believes that all, there's good in all people. You know, these soldiers could be seen as the antagonists, but they're not really. They're just trying to do their job and they have their own complications and you see them tussling with their responsibility um, and you see you do see the good in them as well. And that's that's interesting with what we've said on previous episodes about this this grey area between good and bad and, this idea that there's there's no evil characters is is fascinating from him as well. Offside, I mean, it has a documentary feel to it. I think because because it's shot at a live event, or mainly shot at a live event, it has that fly on the wall documentary feel about it. But it's clearly it's clearly a fiction. 
and a cleverly realized fiction. For me, Pahani's work gets more interesting when he starts to play around with distinctions between fiction and documentary. And that probably brings us back to um, to The Mirror, which is a classic example. I mean, Offside is probably, would you say it's Pahani's most accessible film of the ones you've seen? You know, it's the kind of film that Western audiences would respond to and so on. Yeah, I think so. Where The Mirror is, it's a bit more difficult. There, This young girl, Mina, who's an actress, is left after school without her mum appearing. Her mum doesn't arrive, so she decides to find her own way home and gets lost in the midst of the hubbub of Tehran. In the foray. In the foray, the daily foray. Ends up uh, through various adventures we meet, you know, people on buses and people in the streets. And as you say, they're all they're all people who they're either kind of apathetic or they're kindly but distracted. But you know, no one's no one's kind of going out of their way to help her. But then again, she's not being kidnapped or anything like that. But at about the forty minute mark, she's on a bus, and she's been given a hard time by the bus driver because. Um, she had got off or got the wrong bus or the bus had gone in the wrong direction or whatever it was. And this turning point occurs when the film switches. I won't say from a fiction film to a documentary because I don't think it's that simple, but it switches from narrative fiction mode to documentary mode. Do we get the spoiler? Yeah, but I'm I'm a little bit confused because she has a meltdown and says, I'm not going to act anymore. Exactly. And flips it. Yep. <laughs> she has the classic actor tantrum and uh, refuses. So essentially she becomes a second character, which is herself, the real self. And But, but not only that that the film suddenly becomes a video you know if you if you watch it, it it's it's beautifully shot up until that moment close ups of actors you know the camera really is directing the film and then suddenly she just spits the dummy and says i've had enough i'm not acting anymore uh, she's wearing this plaster cast they've put on her arm for some reason. She throws that off. She throws off her hijab and she storms off of the bus. Um, And Pahani's there, the director and the crew, and they're trying to placate her. And basically she says, no, I'm not acting anymore. And I'm not lost. I can find my own way home. But the device that Pahani switches to is to use a completely different camera and and then the camera becomes part of the action and really the really instead of him directing Mina Mina is directing the film because she just heads off 
and through various you know means of recognition of one person or another or one place or another eventually finds their way home and what what the crew decide to do is rather than persuade her to keep acting is just to follow her and so of course where they would have cleared the streets and rehearsed the shots and practiced the camera moves they're now at the mercy of Mina who keeps disappearing into the traffic behind buildings behind vehicles and they're constantly trying to keep up with her. She's still radio mic'd, and so you get her soundtrack, but not the kind of, not necessarily the sounds of what the camera is seeing, but the sounds of her and her feet and, and so on. And so it becomes, it just switches from this, the director in charge, making a drama about a kid who's lost to a kid who's not lost kind of running amok with the director trying to hang on to her coattails or that's how it how it appears it's a complete flip and they have to adapt to her i'm just confused i'm confused as whether whether the tantrum was scripted or whether that was that just happened and then they they <laughs> this, we seem to watch some films where where the line these lines are blurred between who's performing and who's not, and that's been fascinating to me because it's always I've kind of had a very clear view of this is narrative or this, this is doco, but this um, blending of the two that Panahi does is fascinating. Um, yeah, talk about breaking the rules and well, for me, a clue is that when she spits the dummy and jumps off the bus and the and the shot cuts to this other camera which i think is probably a video camera and suddenly we see the crew and we see panahi but we don't just see the crew and panahi we see the cameraman and the and the camera the 35mm camera that they've been shooting the film on so what is this second camera doing there as if ready to kind of take over? Is it just a video guide camera that happens to be there or have they set the whole thing up so that they can switch modes and the whole thing is planned? Uh, I've scoured the internet <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't found the answer. Would you ask him? Is that what you would Absolutely ask him? Absolutely, I would ask him. <laughs> it's the first question I would ask him if I met him, you know. Yeah. Um, was was the tantrum and the shift planned or was it accidental and you exploited it to the advantage yeah. of your film? But, you know, having said that, I suspect it, w- it was planned. Pahani talks a lot and... Perhaps we'll defer this to when we're talking about this is not a film, but he talks about his philosophy of using non-actors as actors precisely because they add a degree of unpredictability to the proceedings and to the story. And, you know, whereas you can direct an actor, it's much more difficult to direct. There's an uncertainty about working with non-actors. 
And so it's quite possible that this little girl had had enough and just spat the dummy and jumped off the bus. Yeah, we wouldn't know how hard she was pushed to that point. There's a lot of historical stories of directors pushing actors, particularly Kubrick and The Shining. Kubrick's renowned for her for having broken a few actors. Pahani talks about, I think it was in relation to uh, the film I mentioned, The White Balloon, which is about another little girl who happens to be the sister of the girl in The Mirror, who is trying to buy a goldfish with some money she's borrowed from her mum and has this whole adventure out in the streets. She loses the money and her brother's looking for her and all of these kinds of adventures happen along the way. And Pahani talks about how he got her to look at him when he wanted her to cry and he would cry and then she would cry because she couldn't cry on cue. And so when you talk about, you know, we don't know how much of a hard time um, this kid in Mina in the mirror had had, there's an indication that he was working them pretty hard if, if he was using those kinds of techniques to get responses from them. So, yeah, who knows? But I think, I th- I th- you know, I think it's deliberate that Pahani has never kind of publicly stated his position about whether this was planned or not. Because I think it's what he's on about, you know. He's on about docu-fiction, just as Kiara Stami was, that, you know, what, which, which is more true, documentary or fiction? And when one looks like the other, what, what do we kind of make of it? And who is in charge and all of those sorts of questions are questions that he's constantly asking in his filmmaking. His style is described as a tension between the immediacy of documentary and a set of strictly defined formal parameters, which is this balance between the structured and the not structured. And that probably brings us on to um, This Is Not A Film. This Is Not A Film was the one that really attracted your attention and that you wanted to have a look at and talk about. Yeah, so the premises for This Is Not A Film it's kind of kind of hard. <laughs> There's no simple plot, you know, logline to this. Um, this is not a film, but the premise is, is obviously he has these bands that have been placed on him. The, the arrest had happened and he's he's got a script that he was wanting to do and this ministry had actually told him to tone it down and he's basically coming to terms with the fact that this script will never see the light of day. So he has an idea where he calls his cameraman round to perhaps just tell the story and what he was thinking as a way of getting it out there if he's ultimately forbidden from from making making the film. So he's so the film starts with 
with his cameraman coming on board and coming to terms with this idea of just talking about the scripted story and then it sort of evolves into something else. The whole of the film takes place in his house. Where he's under house arrest. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes into the living room to kind of set the scene. And he talks about the framing he would have had and, and the shots and he talks about where the the actress is positioned and you get an idea of it. But then he he gets frustrated and he stops and he poses a really interesting question, which is why make a film when you can tell a film? It was shot of us. I mean, it, it feels as though it's all shot in one day. You know, it's kind of day in the life of... He's having breakfast at the beginning and in the end the New Year's, Iranian New Year fireworks start at night and that's so it, it's, it's structured to look like a day in the life of his um, home arrest. But it was shot, I think, over a period of three or four days. What's classic is he doesn't know where he stands. Like if he calls cut, is he being a director and is that going to get him in trouble? Yeah, that's where the cameraman says you can't say cut, you know. <laughs> you got to leave it to me because if you say cut, you're directing and you're banned from directing. So you just tell the film and I'll film you telling the film. So it's quite amused, quite kind of ironic, droll, quite amusing from that point of view. And then, you know, various things happen during the day. A woman knocks on the door because he's obviously he's in an apartment block um, and wants him to look after her dog called Mickey while she goes to the fireworks. And Mickey lasts about 20 minutes of barking and Pahani kicks the dog out. He's already, he's already looking after an iguana. Is it an iguana? Yes. I love the iguana, Iggy the Iguana. Iggy the Iguana. Which belongs to, I think it's his daughter. His daughter and his wife are out visiting grandparents on New Year's Day. That's, that's how the story goes. Yeah, he's got this iguana in the, in the apartment. He's quite affectionate with it. It climbs, climbs over him and he's feeding it. It's an interesting pet. But, yeah, the dog that comes in scares the iguana so he boots the dog out he's like this isn't gonna work (laughs) yeah and then the um the cameraman's trying to leave because he's sort of had enough for the day and another guy turns up who's allegedly putting out the trash from all the apartments but you kind of wonder is he in because he's he's very interested in what Pahani is doing and he spots the camera and he appears somewhat in awe of Pahani and the camera, but you're kind of wondering, is he an agent from the ministry, you know? I was wondering whether he was an actor. My feeling is, I mean, he was so familiar with the other people. I mean, he he was the brother of someone else who lives in the apartments. He's helping her out. He was familiar with, like, they go down in the lift and on every floor he goes out to pick up the trash. He's so familiar with the process. I think he's a genuine guy. Yeah, in the process of the garbage collection. Yeah, but but you never quite know. 
it's uncanny that the guy who's there to collect the garbage is an arts, a student of art, and that the script Panahi was intending to make is essentially about a, a woman who wants to study art in Iran and, and is forbidden in a way by her family to do that or not forbidden, but she struggles with her family to study art. And so there's this, this uh, cool correlation between this guy at the end because he basically says, I'm studying the arts, but ultimately I'm not going to have a job. And the film finishes in a similar way to Offside. The last shot of Offside, one of the girls has two sparklers, fireworks, and there's street celebrations because Iran are in the World Cup. And the last, the last image in This Is Not A Film, this guy walks into the, the street there's fires on the street going on with these New Year's celebrations. So that culmination at the end was was pretty cool. I don't I again I don't know how much of that was intended or coincidental or well it's a very interesting connection. I hadn't made the connection between the character in the film that Bahani was acting out and the guy who turns up. You may well be right, or it may just be a piece of synchronicity that happened during the four to four or five days of filming because presumably lots of other things happened and people came and went and phone calls and all of that kind of stuff. So maybe it was a piece of synchronicity that um, Pahani tapped into. It was a beautiful ending for me in that sense because I immediately made that correlation as soon as the guy said he he was an art student but ultimately there's no work for me. Mm. So I have to, I'm going to have to do these 20 jobs mm. that I do. That's a, that's a big message about the security of being an artist. Yeah. A big part of the film is when Panahi and his cameraman debate whether it's actually a film or not. And it poses the question, <laughs> what's the definition of a film? And I think Panahi says, you call this a film? Is this a film? Or what's the definition of a film? Or The camera guy says the important thing is documentation. That's what I'm here for. But he also says, you know, you better take a couple of shots of me in case I get arrested. So they're quite playful about this notion of whether or not they're making a film. <laughs> and a film comes out of it, which apparently, by all accounts, you know, Pahani smuggled out on a USB in a cake to the Cannes Film Festival where it won a prize. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. But there is there is a middle part of the film where Pahani, you know, he's he's tried to act out the scene and he spat the dummy because... As you said, he says, well, look, if I can tell the film, why would I want to make it? And he gets a bit depressed and he sits down, he starts looking at his old films and referring to them. And he actually says, I'm like Mina in Mirror. I need to throw off this plaster cast. You know, I feel like I'm just marking time. And then he puts in uh, another couple of DVDs of his films um, and he shows this example of an of a non-actor actor 
who just surprised him completely with some facial expression or something that he did that Pahani had never seen anyone do before. And so he starts philosophizing about, you know, do I direct the film or does the film direct me? I actually don't know what the film is until I've made it. And once I've made the film, then I find an explanation for what the film is and what it's about. But while I'm making it, anything could happen. This rogue actor like Mina could spit the dummy and or come out, come out with some line of dialogue or some visual expression, which, you know, Pahani's never even dreamed of. So he starts to talk about this unpredictability of the kind of films that he makes. While he's in the process of making a film which he doesn't know whether it's a film or not or whether it's going to turn out to be a film. So, you know, Pahani's kind of (laughs) disappearing up his own backside. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, the film within the film within the film within the, yeah, that's the classic thing. Absolutely. I mean, he even talks about the way locations don't direct the film. He shows an example of this woman who's running through a building. and He says, you know, she doesn't need to look anxious. The building makes her look anxious. Yeah, I found that really cool when he said that. The, the, the vertical lines of the, the window frame gave a rhythm and an anxiety to her. She's in a state, but the setting she's in is creating that too. Yeah, and I think this is the the sensibility that Pahani and other Iranian filmmakers seem to have is this sensibility of allowing the film to kind of determine itself rather than, I mean, you know, he has a script and he does all his preparation and all of that, but he, he makes sure that inherent in the process is enough unpredictability to sort of confound the script and to take the film somewhere else. The cameraman, I was trying to think when you said, you know, what what did the cameraman say when they're having this debate about is it a film or not? He comes out with this great line, which is they say that when hairdressers have nothing to do, they cut each other's hair. (laughs) 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 And that's when Bahani starts filming him with his iPhone. Yes, they go back and forth. Yeah. So they go back and forth. The cameraman's got the real camera and uh, Jaffer Bahani's playing with his iPhone and, and the vision cuts. And then, of course, there's what's going on in the outside world, which is a whole heap of racket, which actually could sound like uh, could sound like gunfire going off, but it turns out to be fireworks. But then there's also an, a, a report that, the authorities are banning fireworks. They don't consider them a religious celebration or, or something like that. So you get, a, again, even within the apartment and within all this stuff, you get a sense of the perhaps oppressive nature of the government. To, to get a sense of that in that simple setting, again, is bigger picture stuff of, of of society in Iran. Absolutely. 
And then at the end of the film, because it's not a film, it has no credits. It doesn't say a film by, it says an, an effort by dot, dot, dot. And then thanks to dot, 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 dot. There's no actual names because it could get them into trouble. It says thanks to all Iranian filmmakers. It says dedicated, I think. Yeah, to all all Iranian filmmakers. And I read that there's been a, a massive push from esteemed directors around the world trying to sign petitions or, you know, create a movement against his bands. Uh, there's been huge international attention and humanitarian stuff around his his case. How much that achieved, I'm not sure, but there was a lot of movement from very, very established people internationally around that to get him liberated, basically. There's another kind of perspective on that. Like I've had a few Iranian students go through my course um, who've made fantastic films, really interesting films. And one of the guys who's made the most interesting film, I was telling him I was going to watch, you know, um, this is not a film again. And he said, huh, Pahani, you know, you can tell from that film how rich he is. You know, he lives in this really wealthy apartment. And, yeah, you know, he's, he's banned and he's under house arrest, but he's managing to exploit that situation because there's so much focus on him. Everybody wants to see the next film that Pahani makes. So... This Iranian student of mine was a little bit sceptical about the whole the whole shebang and thinks that Pahani's really not that badly off and managing, despite the supposedly close scrutiny of the Ministry of Culture and Guidance, seems to manage to put films out, you know, with regular monotony <laughs> to win prizes around the world. Well, I think I think this is what I was getting at at the start. Like it's difficult, it's difficult enough as it is to make a film, but when you're being forbidden to make one, you know, that's a whole different kettle of fish. It is a different kettle of fish, but also, you know, it brings out perhaps it's a challenge. It can be seen as a challenge. In general, he doesn't seem too unhappy with life. Like it's hard to know how much kind of wealth matters in Iran and how much you can get around legalities and so on. It's a bit like my students during lockdown, you know, they've all been under house arrest. And, of course, we felt sorry for them and they complained and because they couldn't get out, out on location and they couldn't get the good gear and have a crew on their film. They basically had to make films in their bedrooms. And some of those films are incredibly innovative, moving, different, you know, To whereas if they'd had the opportunity, they would have been probably making conventional films out, out in the real world. I heard a production designer recently say that they liked it when they had a restricted budget because it made them, when they had endless money on big sets, they, were, they had too many choices. And he said that he actually liked it when the budget was, was less and restricted because he actually had to come up with creative solutions 
with with the minimal materials he had. And I think it applies in the same way. Like if everybody's all of a sudden trapped in a room, it's kind of stripping everything down. And it's like, well, how are you going to move? How are you going to use this as a vessel to tell your tell your story? Yeah. It's a great pedagogical tool for teaching, really, you know, because students get so hung up on, you know, which is the best camera and what camera and can I use a dolly and, you know, I want to use three cameras and, uh, you know, they get so hung up on that stuff, they forget that they're really there to find their personal filmmaking voice Mm. and make something that's different and innovative. And it seems to me that whatever, you know, and I I don't don't want to be under house arrest um, in Iran, but Pahani has turned it into an opportunity in some ways. Who knows what kind of films he would have been making. But under house arrest, he's made some very interesting films indeed. I've sort of been saying Panahi and you've been saying Pahani. (laughs) It's Panahi. Panahi. I thought I had it. (laughs) Have I been saying Pahani all this time? We've been alternating. We've uh, we've been alternating a lot, but it's Panahi. Well, you know, I was afraid I might have to try and pronounce the name of the cameraman in This Is Not A Film, (laughs) which is... Mojtabi Matamasp. I mean, for Western ears, Iranian names are a nightmare, really. Um, so apologies to both Panahi <laughs> and our two listeners if I've been using the incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> I think we've 50 50, but that's fine. But, um, okay. And now that was. But what's been an interesting theme, as you're saying, with with your students and, you know, what I've been exploring myself and stuff is, again, this balance between the structured and the non-structured and the how much of the filmmaking process is hidden and how much is transparent and the immediacy of documentary versus the the planning of, of narrative stuff and finding a balance between all that and, um, that's been really interesting for me through our first season to explore that idea of exposed, transparent filmmaking versus bringing in versus narrative stuff. And Panahi is, is, is the kind of prime example of marrying, marrying it all. Yeah, but he's not an example of transparency, is he? Exactly. Because half the time you don't know what the heck's going on and whether we're dealing with actors or... Yes, and our our two big questions are the the little girl's tantrum and the guy at the end of the mystery around the guy at the end of this is not a film. So, yeah, that's you're right. And that brings us to Taxi, which is the fourth film that that we've looked at and want to discuss because it it appears to be a documentary. And that was the one I started with, and again I was confused. <laughs> so I, was like, I was like, "So the premise of Taxi Panahi is essentially posing as a taxi driver in Tehran, and he's driving his taxi, and all the and various people 
jump in the taxi and various things happen and he, he deals with it as he goes about his business and, and characters and events just keep coming. They just keep happening. Cause I, I, when I started watching it, I hadn't researched him at all. And so I was like, okay, this is the fly on the wall taxi driver. I didn't even realize the taxi driver was, was him at that early stage. Um, (laughs) And when these nonsensical, quite dramatic things started to happen, I was like, okay, I kind of get what's going, what's, what's going on. But I I found it very, very entertaining. And again, some relevance to Ketty perhaps in terms of a city that I knew nothing about and, and the, um, the social, social challenges and, and, stuff in Iran, get it be again, being a, a fly on the wall to all that while these things are going on in the mayhem of, of the confined space, which is the taxi. Which is rigged with must be at least three cameras, one, one on the driver, one on the front seat passenger and one on the back seat. It's quite good quality as well. It must have been a decent camera on the front there. But the interesting thing or the difference between our taxis and terrain and Iranian taxis is they don't just pick up one passenger <laughs> and take them to their destination and then pick up another. People are constantly just jumping in and out so that at one stage there's three or four different passengers in the taxi. <laughs> and they converse you know, and with each other. Yeah, they converse with each other and they get dropped off at various places. Kind of like a... Yeah, the modern car sharing or things that have. It actually reminded me I've had a couple of classic experiences here in Germany because when when I was first here, there's a big car sharing culture and I used to, you know, you'd find a car, you'd talk to the driver, you'd meet them and you'd all, you know, three or four people would head to Berlin together. And it reminded me because I had a few classic incidences and I was thinking this is really, there's something in this because, get a car full of random people on a three-hour trip maybe they sit in silence maybe they start to talk but I had a couple of times <laughs> I had a couple of times when conflicts happened and um, all sorts of things went down I thought it was fascinating so it reminded me of that when when various passengers started to uh, engage with each other it's pretty classic <laughs> it, again it's interesting because it's a film in two halves um, the first half, various adults, you know, come and go in the taxi. And in the second half of the film is made up entirely of him um, ferrying his niece around, who's this little girl who's perhaps, you know, 10 years old or something like that, and is actually apparently his niece, Hannah. But the first half of the film is... Is is a ripper, really? It's hilarious. I mean, it starts off with a a guy arguing with a a woman about capital punishment. <laughs> well, he suggests he suggests that the guy he suggests that a guy should be executed, but then admits that his job is as a as a mugger, like he's a robber himself. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And then who's next after that? Then then there's then there's an unconscious bloke. Yeah, well then then um, some woman hauls her. They throw a guy into the back of the car who's been in an accident and is covered in blood. 
and his wife is with him and hysterical, wants him taken to hospital. And on the way to hospital, he he decides he's dying and he wants to record his will and testament on 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 the on the phone Panahi <laughs> on Panahi's <laughs> iPhone, which the mugger <laughs> films. <laughs> Well, then oh, no, not the mugger. Sorry, sorry, it's the other guy. It's not the mugger. It's, it's another. The, it's the seller of DVDs, and he's going around delivering what are presumably illicit DVDs, you know, Hollywood movies, Woody Allen and all the rest of it that are presumably banned in Iran to, to customers around the place, and is presumably delivering them Panahi's films as well, you know, as part of his swag he recognises Panahi and kind of wants to be Panahi's buddy. He talks about himself, this this DVD guy, as kind of the, uh, not the, the Robin Hood, but kind of the guy doing good for the people because he's... he's, he's yeah, absolutely. He's, and he's, he's a Danny DeVito character, isn't he? <laughs> Short and fat. <laughs> and he tries to, you know, he tries to make out that Panahi's his business partner or something and Panahi gets a bit fed up with yeah, that. Yeah, it goes and, a bit awry, yeah. Yeah. So after the they've got the guy to hospital and, you know, he, he doesn't die at all, um, these two women get in the back with a, <laughs> a, a goldfish in a bowl, <laughs> which, you know, has a number of connections, not least to The White Balloon, which is the first film that Panahi directed about the little girl who has big adventures trying to buy a goldfish down the street. But, of course, you know, they've got this goldfish in a bowl and Panahi has to make a sudden stop in the taxi and the goldfish spills. <laughs> no, he smashes the bowl. He shatters, oh, the, the, bowl. He shatters the bowl. <laughs> and so they're in... They're in Pandemonium breaks out and he has to grab a plastic bag full of water and chuck the fish in it. Yeah. <laughs> Which <It> reminds reminded... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, go on. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. So when, <laughs> when I was a kid, I don't know how old I was, but I took it upon myself to go to the Melbourne show and they'd advertised at the Melbourne show that you could buy a fish in a nice little plastic square tank, you, you know, the show was renowned for buying show bags full of goodies, but for some reason I got fixated on going there and buying a bloody goldfish. And for those who, who might not know the Melbourne show, it's like a carnival, so there's rides. And so my day at the show, I made the very smart move of buying the fish at the start of the day. So I'm sitting on all these roller coasters and shit holding this Got poor goldfish, which is friggin' traumatized by the end of the day. But I managed to get it home probably with less water in the thing. Oh no, there's two incidents. The way there's two incidences here. Sorry, the the handle snapped. That I was carrying the plastic tank to the kitchen, and the handle busted, and it shattered on the floor. And I picked the fish up, and I chucked it in the fish tank that we had. It went on to survive with two other fish in that fish tank. Then we went to clean the fish tank. We placed all the fish in a bucket and baby Sinead came in. 
That's right. She was probably two or three and she reached up and grabbed the top of the bucket and pulled the bucket over and the fish just spewed across the kitchen floor and they were all in different parts of the kitchen flapping about and we had to scoop them up and chuck them back in the tank before they all carked it. And they all survived, I recall. They all they all went on to to live to about eight or nine. Yeah, in your illustrious pond in the garden. That came to mind immediately that the goldfish spill happened in the back of the taxi. But yeah, by that stage in the film, you're thinking, okay, you know, you know, this is all getting a bit much to be a documentary. I think. Panahi possibly set out to make a film where he was just entertaining people in his taxi, but probably he had issues with, you know, um, release forms and sign-offs and all of that. And it seems to me that maybe some of those people were real, but the DVD guy, you know, the guy who's been in the accident with his hysterical wife, even the two women with the fish, you know, Actors, I would say, but again, Mike, who knows? And in fact, he picks up his niece, and the second half of the film, he's ferrying her around while he does various chores and visits an old neighbor and so on. She's quite amusing as well. Like she gives it to him. Like the girls in the um, in Offside, she <laughs> she gives him a tough time. Oh, she's a spirited young woman. <laughs> but coincidentally, she's. Uh, um, from her teacher is learning to make a film and trying to shoot a film. So she has this little camera and she starts to talk about the guidelines that the teacher has given them for making films and they are the guidelines laid down by the Ministry of Culture and Guidance. And I've written them, she calls it, in order to make a district distributable movie, we have to conform to these guidelines. And Panahi says, okay, so what did your teacher say are the guidelines? And she says, well, we've got to respect the Islamic headscarf. There there can be no contact between men and women. We must show no, quote, sordid realism, no violence. We have to avoid the use of a tie for the good guys, and we have to avoid Iranian names for the good guys and give them the names of Islamic saints. And we have to avoid discussing political and economic issues. And, you know, we have to censor ourselves in this way to in order to make a film. So she has kind of reeled off to Panahi the very guidelines which has caused him so much grief. Be, yeah, to cause him to be banned from making films. So it's it's very ironic and he, he takes it quite ironically because in the process um they he's been to been to see an old neighbor of his who tells him how he got mugged but he didn't he recognised the muggers as as people from the neighbourhood and he knew they were poor and so he didn't report them to the police. And 
he's an ordinary Iranian guy with an Iranian name and wearing a tie. And so when Hannah starts berating Panahi with all these guidelines, he says, well, what if we wanted to make a film about my old neighbor who we've just met? What, what should we do? You know, he wears a tie. <laughs> He's got an, an ordinary Iranian name. Do we have to kind of recreate him? And uh, she's a bit flummoxed by this. So there's this playing out of the very kind of um, dilemmas that Panahi has found himself in and the absurdity of these cultural guidelines that filmmakers have to subscribe to. So it's another interesting film in two halves, really. Two very different halves. Yeah, and and while Hannah is in the film, a woman gets in the car who actually is a human rights lawyer and starts to talk to Pahani and whether she's been, uh, you know, has set up this is, I don't know, but she is a real human rights lawyer and she talks about a case that she's involved in where um, some girls have been arrested because they were playing volleyball. And there's this reference again to Panahi's. She says, just like your film Offside, you know, and I'm trying to defend these girls who've been arrested for, for playing volleyball. And her advice to him is to let it go, you know. She said she points at the camera and says, I can see what you're doing, Panahi. I, you know, I'm not stupid. Um, but you'd be better to just let this whole thing go mm. and and avoid the stress of trying to continue to make films. And he just smiles. What a serious set of parameters. <laughs> Panahi, what a legend despite a little bit of scepticism expressed by some of his countrymen who live in Australia, I think he's um, a very interesting filmmaker and gives you a different kind of take on reality and fiction and documentary and and, and all of that, which is, um, for me, is is a fascinating Fascinatingly different perspective to your standard Netflix, you know, hair. The dialogue of what he's been trying to do on an international scale, you know, he was supposed to be on some panel and, you know, he couldn't get there obviously so they left his seat empty as a as an emblem of all this, you know, the dialogue that this has kind of triggered on a bigger scale. Um, as he's tried to bring about social change. The the sad thing is that probably the the people who've seen his film least are Iranians um, because of his films are banned there. Yeah, but thank you again to for sending me to his body of work because I'm not sure I would have would have explored that. So I really enjoyed diving. It's cool to dive into the the body of one one filmmaker as a whole. And these films, some are quite accessible, like The Mirror is available free on YouTube. I think 
taxi I rented from YouTube. The one we found difficult to get hold of was actually this is not a film because it doesn't seem to be available on the internet and I had to send away for a DVD. And it probably varies around the world how accessible these films are, but certainly on YouTube you can watch some of these older films. So our our two listeners, if they're not sure where to find some of the films that we refer to, see if you can download Just Watch. I reckon we've got more than two listeners, Dad. Do you? Well, we've got Uncle Tony. <laughs> we've got Uncle Tony. Yeah, I'm sure we've got more than two listeners, <laughs> three or four. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that controversial statement out there. Till next time. Au revoir. Arrivederci. Cheers. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what goodbye is in Persian, in Farsi. Salam is, you know, hello, but I'm not sure what goodbye is. We'll have to find it out. Okay. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. On the next episode, our final of the season, we take a look at two feature narrative films, one from Australia where Wolf is and one from Europe where I am. Wolf has chosen the Aussie flick The Tracker and I've chosen a Danish film, Another Round. See you on the next Wolf Cub Film Club. Thank you.